The Christian life is a life of victory over the long haul. When John, the revelator, wrote the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, he wrote letters to the seven churches, and each of those churches he talks about to the ones who conquer, to the ones who conquer, to the ones who conquer, there will be life forevermore. The Christian life is one of victory over the long haul. That's the life we're called into. It's victorious. But if it's going to be victorious over the long haul, that means there's going to have to be victories or there's going to have to be battles to fight. The Christian life is a series of battles from the time you're born again to the time that you leave this earth to go home. It's a series of battles. There's always battles. There's always a fight with the world, the flesh, the devil. It's always there. And we're called to be victorious. We're called to engage in battle. We're not called to tuck tail and run. That's what the Christian life is. It's a battle. There's joy along the way. There's going to be suffering and sorrow along the way. That's what life is. It's a mixture of all of those, primarily one of joy. But you're going to have conflict. And with conflict, at times, there's going to, there's going to be times where it feels like defeat. It just feels like I'm not, I haven't had victory here. And the victory over the long haul is secure. It's there. But in this particular moment, I feel like I'm getting my teeth kicked in. It feels like a loss. Somebody dies. You lose the job. And it feels like in that moment, this is certainly not victory. It feels like defeat. That's going to come. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be battle after battle after battle. And the question, I think, for many people, because some of you may become a Christian and thought, when I become a Christian, life just gets easier and easier and easier until I die. It's just a bed of roses and things are, are nice. And uh, I'm protected from all things dangerous and I'm protected from all things difficult. And then you become a Christian and you realize, man, in a lot of ways, this is harder. It's more difficult than the life I used to live. There's new conflict that I didn't know about before. There's conviction that I used to not have that I now have. God won't let me get away with the things I used to get away with. And now all of a sudden there's all this battles in front of me. And the reason is the Bible tells us that the world hates us. The world hates us. That the, the kingdom of the world is the kingdom of, of Satan, demons. It's where spiritual warfare happens. It's everything that is opposed to the kingdom of God. The world hates you. Then we have this thing called the flesh, which we'll be focusing in on today. The flesh. The flesh inside of us, although we have been born again, there still remains with us remnants of flesh and indwelling sin that hates us. It hates that we're born again. The flesh opposes the spirit within us. And then the devil. The devil hates us, hates you, hates God's purposes. And his minions are out to fight against the kingdom of God. So there's conflict. You become a Christian and you realize, I, I have to be built for war because war is coming to me. Spiritual warfare is for all Christians, not just an elite group. It's for every single Christian. Spiritual warfare is yours. The flesh... And the Spirit, they war against each other. We're going to see this so clearly today in our passage where the flesh and the Spirit are polar opposites at bitter warfare. To be a Christian, for sure, is to be somebody that's fully forgiven of all your sins. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is, is one who has all their sins forgiven. Past, present, future. You're settled on that. You know you're justified. You know you're right with God. You have assurance. To be a Christian is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Spirit of God. How in the world do you become a Christian? 
The Holy Spirit has to indwell you, change you from the inside out. There's no such thing as a Christian who can opt out of the Spirit-filled life. We walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit. To be a Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. Then to be a Christian is to be at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's no opting out of that either. So spiritual spiritual warfare is for everyone, every single Christian. So we have to wake up every single day and prepare for battle. Some days are going to be easier than others. Some days clearly are going to be harder than others. But make no mistake, every single day there are battles to fight. There's no coasting in the kingdom of God. There are hills to climb. There are enemies to defeat. And there are sins to overcome. And every single Christian, every Christian has indwelling sin. Right now, you have indwelling sin that we are called to fight. Every single Christian. You wake up every day, for some of us, you know exactly what that sin is. Every day it feels like it's this lion that's chained outside waiting, you, waiting for you. As soon as you open that door, you step outside of it, and there's your battle that you have to fight. That sin is right there, and it's present. And then for others, there may be seasons where you're looking around and saying, man, God has been so faithful. There isn't this blaringly obvious sin right now that I know of that I'm battling every single day, but it's all these little annoying sins that I'm battling every single day. But rest assured, every Christian has sin to fight. And if you don't think you have sins to fight, you are being deceived. And a part of your battle to fight is to fight through the deception. Because the deception is real. The Christian who thinks everything's good, there's no sin in front of me, and I have no indwelling sin, is a Christian who has been deceived. You have battles to fight. And the Bible promises this. Look at verse 16 with me in Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. I love how clear the Scriptures are, and I love how this passage, along with Romans chapter 7, which is a very complimentary passage, this passage unites us all in our experiences. It unites us all in our Christian life. First, in verse 16, we have a command. The command is, walk by the Spirit. Now, that can seem very ethereal, the command, walk by the Spirit or live by the Spirit. We're going to clear that up today. Before we finish today, you're going to have a clear game plan of how you walk by the Spirit. Because often we think walking or living by the Spirit is some hyper-spiritual path that you've got to walk, always being tuned in to the extra-biblical Word of God. Now certainly the Holy Spirit of God is going to lead you in certain directions, but we're going to get a clear path to know today, before we finish, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? And we're going to take it from this this mystical idea into very real and practical steps for us today. But if you walk by the Spirit, the result's very clear in verse 16. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the result of walking by the Spirit. So we really need to make that helpful because I think all of us in here, if you're like, okay, great, then I need to walk by the Spirit because I don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's unify everybody in experience here. Is there anybody here that wants to walk according to the Spirit so you don't gratify the desires of the flesh? Let's see the hands again. Those desires of the flesh are so annoying. Those sin propensities, the selfishness that's there can be surprising when you wake up and you realize, man, why am I still so self-absorbed? Why is my first thought 
about me or not about the people I love? Or why am I so angry? Why do I still deal with anger? It's like no matter what I do, the anger is just right below the surface. And it may take six months to come out, but when it comes out, it's ugly. Why is that still there? Fits of rage. Why is that still there? Or envy? Why am I envious of somebody else's life? What they have or what they don't deal with? You know, envy can be a powerful, powerful thing to rot your soul. Just envious of somebody else's more peaceful life, envious of somebody else's wealth, envious of somebody else's power, envious of somebody else's truck. Envy. And you think, I've been walking with the Lord for so long now, why do I still deal with this envy? Well, if we walk according to the Spirit, it's going to keep us from walking in the desires of the flesh. I think we all want that. That's what the Holy Spirit of God does in us. So today, even though we have the battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we're focusing on that middle word, the flesh. We're going to battle the flesh. The Holy Spirit within us helps us, so we're going to flesh that out a little bit. Look at verse 17 again. I want you to read this again or hear me read it again. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. There's the warfare. Flesh and spirit against each other. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. And then very important line. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. So here are the polar opposites. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. And even though Paul is speaking to men and women who have a new heart, they've been born again, and even though they have the Spirit of God within them, he knows that there is warfare happening within their souls. Paul lays this out for us very, very clearly in Romans 7, where he argues and he laments, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. And at that time, Paul had been walking with the Lord for a very long time. You know, we have a tendency to think the longer we walk with the Lord, the less frustrating sin is. The truth is, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more frustrating sin gets. We get less and less comfortable with it. And so when we see it, we don't like it. And so Paul has experienced this, and he knows that they are experiencing this, and the reason is very clear, because the Holy Spirit inside of us and the flesh inside of us are absolutely at war. Even though we're sons of God, we still have desires inside of us that are ungodly, and we still have to deny ourselves. When Jesus gives the command to us in Luke 9, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, it's one of the most countercultural commands ever because today the commands of the world today are love yourself, get rid of any toxic burden, don't take up your cross, and follow the desires of your heart. And Jesus comes in, he throws a wrench into all the modern pop psychology plans and most, unfortunately, much evangelical preaching and says, deny yourself. Those desires that are still there, deny them. And that's for everybody. And for some reason, we get into the desires of the flesh here, particularly with sexual sins and even homosexuality in our current cultural moment. It seems to be the one sin that we're scared to tell people, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because everybody has to walk in self-denial. 
Every single Christian in here has some things to deny within yourself. Fleshly desires that you have to say no to. You're going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to have to say, no, I will not walk in the ways of the flesh today. No. But we live in a society that says, no, those fleshly desires are good. You should embrace them, love them, and have everybody else celebrate those fleshly desires with you. And we have to, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, say, no, I'm going to go to war with the flesh. I will not embrace the flesh. I'm going to walk according to the Spirit. The flesh and the Spirit are at war within us. That's why sanctification is so hard. That's why spiritual growth is so hard. That's why at times it can feel like, even if you've been walking with the Lord for so long, it can feel like in that moment, if you look back, you can still see and others can see, okay, there's been a lot of progress, but in this moment it feels like I'm regressing. The reason sanctification, spiritual growth, feels like at times you're taking five steps back is because warfare is involved. And when you're facing battles, there's going to be time that you get your spiritual arm cut off. There's going to be times when the fiery darts of the devil get shot at you and your flesh rises up and it agrees with that satanic dart. And it's going to feel like you're walking backwards. Wish if I could moonwalk, that's when I would have done that right then. It's going to feel like you're moving backwards. That's why sanctification is so hard. Spiritual growth is not easy. It's not easy for anyone. Spiritual growth requires not earning anything from God, but it requires effort. That's one of the things, one of the reasons why the Bible reading challenge, and if you're not in that yet, is so helpful. Disciplining yourself to hear from God every single day as much as you can is going to be so beneficial to you, but it requires discipline. It requires that. Well, I don't have time. Yes, you do. The reason we don't take time to hear from God is because we don't want to. That's the ugly truth about lack of hearing from God. If you don't want to hear from God, or if you're not reading your scriptures, it's because you don't want to hear from God. And so spiritual growth, sanctification, hearing from God requires discipline. It requires making some Holy Spirit-led decisions. Now... Why in the world would the flesh be opposed to the spirit? It seems pretty obvious because they're opposed to each other because they value different things. But look at verse 17, the second half. The reason the flesh is out to get you is to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. It's a maniacal purpose. The flesh is out to get you, and it does not want you to walk within the spirit. Your flesh does not want you to live a spirit-filled life. It wants to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, this is such a key sentence or half of a sentence for us to understand today. The flesh is at war against the spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The exact same phrase is said in Romans chapter 7. What is it that the Christian wants to do? Does the Christian want to obey or does the Christian want to disobey? Obey. obey. The Christian wants to honor the Lord. The Christian wants to obey his commandments. The Christian wants to give glory to God amongst our lives with our family, and our workers, at co-workers, at school, wherever you find yourself. The Christian wants to overcome fleshly desires. But the flesh is opposed to that and wants you to walk in the flesh. 
That's why that war is there. It's so maniacal. And this is inside of us. This is the indwelling sin that's still inside of us, even though we have a new heart. Tucked within that new heart that's born again, that fleshly good heart that has the Holy Spirit of God, is still remaining pockets of sin that's absolutely at war with the Spirit's work. It's maniacal. Even though we want to obey, the flesh is out to get us to try to stray us off the path, stray us off of the Spirit-filled life. Now, Paul's going to work this out for us really clearly in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And we're going to hit on this and we're going to come back to this, okay? We're going to be back at this here in verse 23, okay? So keep this in mind. If the Holy Spirit is leading you, you will not be under the law. Following the Holy Spirit will lead to obedience to God's law, not condemnation by it. Let me say that again. Following the Holy Spirit will lead you to obedience to God's law, not condemnation by it. The Spirit of God leads us toward holiness and not towards sin. That's why it's so despicable to use the grace of God as a way to sin and then have the expectation God will just forgive me. That is evil. The Spirit of God, when He is leading us, will lead us to not be condemned by God's law because we'll be walking in step and be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're displaying the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll come back to here in a minute, if you're walking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control, there's no law that condemns that. There's no law that comes along and says, well, you're living a self-controlled life, you're condemned. No, because if you're living a self-controlled life, you are following in step with the Spirit and you are obeying God's law. You're not going to be condemned. So we'll come back, like I said, to that in a minute. Now, the works of the flesh. Paul's going to lay out for us the works of the flesh. And you're going to see this in your life. You're going to see some temptations here and struggles here with some of these. And with others, you're not. Okay, And you're going to, it's going to be very clear which ones you may or may not struggle with. These are obvious. The works of the flesh. Verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. So Paul's saying... It's very clear. Works of the flesh are clear. Let me just lay out a few of them. This is not an an all-inclusive list, but here are some of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, as we hear this list, I think we should be reminded that the world's been an evil place for a long time. The flesh has been leading people to do really dark things for a very, very long time. Sexual immorality, because of ages within the room, we have to speak lightly about this, but I don't have to convince you that this is an idol in our country and world today. To say there are any restrictions on sexuality is to immediately get you canceled or put inside of a, you know, if you're, if you're like a weird neo-Nazi, if you believe only uh, two, two people, men and women, that a man and a woman only can be a Christian. You get labeled the craziest or can be in a sexual relationship and married. So you got to get that right. Man, woman, married, lifetime. Those are the only people who can 
lawfully have sexual relations. And to say that gets you labeled something crazy weird. Because they want to uh, desensitize us to the truth. The world, the flesh, and the devil want us to sound crazy. And so to say all forms of sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sinful and it's rebellion against God is to label you as somebody that's speaking hate speech. I've said it once already, but homosexuality for both men and women sends people to hell. In Corinth, there were former homosexuals who were saved and left that lifestyle. They became Christians, denied themselves, and walked in accordance with God's word. Praise God for that. Uh, I don't feel sorry for gay people. I really don't. They're just like every other sinner. They're not a special category. They're just like every other sinner that needs to be told, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. There's hope in Christ. For anybody who would turn for their sins and trust in Jesus. But for some reason, the church has taken a posture that we just have to apologize to everybody that's in sexual sin for how we've mistreated them and all this kind of stuff. That's so ridiculous. If people are in sexual rebellion, they need to be told, you are sinning against a holy God and you will go to hell because of it. But if you'll turn from your wicked ways and trust in Jesus, you can have all of those sins washed away. And you can be fully forgiven. And you can join the club, join the group of people who by God's grace are walking in self-denial. And you can have a life of joy and peace and hope. You're still going to have sin to war against. But welcome to the team. There's hope for those walking in sexual immorality. But for those who embrace sexual immorality, they say there's nothing wrong with it. It's good. And we see how asinine that would be if there was a man walking in adultery and asking everybody to praise him for it and to put on parades for him. Look, this is going to be an adultery pride parade where all the adulterers go out and, and ask for everybody to put up signs in the windows for all the adulterers. We would see how crazy. I mean, I, I think even today in our world we'd say, well, no, that's not good. That's not good. Yet for other sorts of sexual perversions, sexual perversion even against nature itself, Romans 1 tells us, it's celebrated. It's obvious what works of the flesh are. It keeps going. Adultery, homosexuality, pornography, anything outside of sex between a man or a woman, that is sexual immorality. Now these are generalities, but they're broad in implication. So he keeps going and says impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery which is so popular right now. Wicca, being a spiritualist, being a psychic or a witch. I have a friend of mine that was telling me about a girl who was saying that she's a Christian witch and was working in a youth group. This kind of stuff is all over the place. When I was over at the hospital as a chaplain at Heron Hospital, I was over the chap uh, working the chaplaincy and you go in room by room and you talk to different patients and I met a so-called Christian witch. And she said it was her goal to break the stigma of Christian witches. Like, good luck, lady. You know? Like, on to the next room. 
Uh, Wicca and the worship of demons, I don't know if you saw this or not, but praise God for what's happening in Texas right now. There was a heartbeat law. And praise God, when, we, we want a, yes. We want abortion to be abolished immediately. Okay? But we praise God, even when a law that isn't exactly what we would want, we would want abortion to be eradicated across the board even before the heartbeat. But we celebrate when ground is gained and I don't know if you, you saw this or not, but the, the, the Satanists of Texas have, part, have partnered with those in Texas who are trying to get that overturned. And uh, you'd think people would realize, it, when they're talking about it going against their religion of child sacrifice, that people would realize, man, maybe we're on the wrong side of this. The Satanists are over here talking about the glory of child sacrifice. Maybe I should join the pro-life uh, group over there. I mean, you'd think you'd want to be on the wrong side of, or the right side of that. That, ha- like, abortion, that, abortion is a part of our country because of Satan. Satan hates life. The world partners with Satan and the flesh rises up and thinks, well, what's the, that big of a deal? And we say things like, what about rape and incest? Hear me say this, please. The Bible prescribes what should happen in that situation. The rapist should receive the death penalty, not the child. These are works of the flesh. Works of the flesh. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. You know, we read some of this on the list, and we're like divisions, and then two down, orgies, and you're like, huh, that seems to be like different categories here. But Paul's point in saying, and things like these, is that it's obvious. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know what fleshly desires are. They're everywhere. You know them. Don't try to minimize them. Don't try to act like they're not that big of a deal. The works of the flesh are plain, and it leads to destruction. That's obvious what fleshly things are and it's obvious those things are sins you see that list and you think my gosh that's pretty dark and also you think I I actually deal with some of those right now and then you read the next verse I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God those who do such things now it's important some of your versions uh, say practice these things Tell me if your version says practice these things. What do you have, Dan? The Holman? Uh, the, the word practice these things actually catches this word for, uh, for do, the Greek word here, in a little bit better way. John Stott commenting on this, the verb presso refers to habitual practice rather than an isolated lapse. So like, whew, like... <laughs> If you've ever dealt with jealousy or if you're currently de- dealing with jealousy or fits of anger, and I don't know what else can ma- bring a fit of anger, it's some- somehow uh, the water hose finds its way to tie itself up like fishing string, and all you're trying to do is turn Shark Park on, and you're pulling the water hose out, and like this is a smart hose, it's not supposed to get tied up. And you know, you- what you should do is you-, you should walk in and just lightly untie it, but instead you grit your teeth and you're like, uh, if I, and you'll rip that thing in half, and then you'll think this is, 
fits of rage. It's a work of the flesh. It's a work of the flesh. It's small scale, but it's a work of the flesh. And Paul tells us there's a warning. Those who do these things as an ongoing doing, like the word practice, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If these are a marker of your life, if they're ongoing, if you're embracing a fleshly lifestyle, if you look at the, the works of the flesh here, in any of these smaller things or bigger things, you think about the most flamboyant things, you think, well, obviously I'm not embracing sexual immorality or orgies or witchcraft or anything like that. So, you know, those are the, kind of the bigger things. But what about the less flamboyant sins that are on the list, like jealousy, envy, envy or rivalry? You know, we have these things in our life that we think are kind of like pet sins, not that big of a deal. I struggle with my thing, you struggle with your thing. And what we're being told here is that if you practice these things, if you don't recognize them for what they are, sin, as little as you may think they are, if you don't recognize them for sin and go to war, if you just make a practice, embrace them as a lifestyle, and walk in them, it's like you're throwing a parade and asking everybody to come praise you in your envy. It's like you're embracing it. Please, please celebrate my rivalry. Please, please celebrate my jealousy or the divisive nature that I have or the dissensions that I walk in. Please help me embrace fits of anger. There's no big deal. It's not a big deal. There's going to be a fits of anger parade next month. Haven't you heard? October is fits of anger month. Amazon and everybody's jumping on board celebrating fits of anger. No big deal. And Paul's saying, I warn you, I warn you, as I warned you before, those who walk in such things or do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no hope of the kingdom. So, with the flesh, hear me say this, with the flesh, you cannot shrug your shoulders and act like spiritual warfare is not a big deal. Every Christian's called into it. The Spirit of God is warring against the flesh inside of you. It is a big deal. These things have no place in our life. And it says things like these. You know, every week when Andy said, you know, evaluate your heart before we declare the greatness of God's forgiveness, evaluate. Are there any things in your life that you need to confess? If there's sins that you need to confess, we come here together to be able to say, you know what? I'm celebrating the perfect Jesus because I still am in process here and I need to repent again of this sin. And I need to, to name it, and I need to get help, and I need to pray, and ask for others to come alongside of me and help, because I, I don't want to coast, and I don't want to make this a practice of my life. I don't want to be an envious person the rest of my life. I can't be. That's not what God's called me to. We can't get in bed with the wrong person, nor can we get in bed with jealousy, envy, or rivalry. We just can't. And so if we are, if you realize the fleshly areas of your life that you're struggling with, if you've been embracing them, then deal with those things, repent, and go to war with them. Now as we think about this, we could get exhausted thinking about the battle. There's a song we sing, though, that declares the truth of the gospel. We go bravely into battle. Why do we go bravely into battle? Because we know he has won the bravely into battle. I am not afraid of the flesh. Nor should you be. 
We should not be afraid of any sin in our life in the sense that we're terrified or think that it's too big. Jesus has won the war so we can go into the battle. We are not warring our way into the kingdom. We are in the kingdom so we go to war. Same thing with justification. We're not living toward justification. We're living from justification. Now, there is a warning in this passage, I think, also against antinomianism, which is anti-law or against the law, lawlessness. There are false teachings everywhere about God's grace that lead people to not take sin very seriously or lead people to think that they have no sin at all that they're dealing with. Can lead people to think, well, I don't have sin. Christian perfectionism. I don't have any sin to battle. That's a lie of the enemy. It's a lie of the flesh. What about fleshly living? Well, I don't have to be that concerned about fleshly living. It's not all that bad after all because we're under grace, not under law. It's not that big of a deal. God's favor's upon me. He sees Christ in me. What's the big deal? But this passage is clear. Grace fuels joyful battle against the flesh. Grace fuels joyful battle against the flesh. I'm going to wake up tomorrow, not sad about the battle, but I'm going to wake up ready to fight. I'm going to wake up, I belong to the Lord, I'm going to confess it, and and when I sin again, because I know it's going to happen, I'm not going to be Eeyore about it, I'm not going to be like, I'm going to get up, as a righteous man gets up, I'm going to keep going to fight. I'm going to keep looking to Christ. And you know what? Over the years, here's what I'm going to find. The power of sin has been broken in my life. And I don't deal with that sin the way I do, did anymore. There's new things that God's going to work on in your life. But you're going to see over time the fruit of the Spirit starting to come out. It's inevitable. In every Christian, the f- fruit of the Spirit should be there. Look at this with me. The fruit of the Spirit, singular, not fruits of the Spirit. This is fruit. This is God working all these things in you at the same time to lesser or greater degrees. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in you is opposing the work of the flesh in you. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing inside of us, making us people like this. The fruit of the Spirit directs our relationship to God, to people, and it even impacts self-government. When you think about these words, it's all-encompassing. God, others, and even with myself. Love, joy, peace. We love God, we have joy because of what He's done for us, and we walk in peace. Patience, kindness, and goodness deals with life with others. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control has to do with the Spirit's work in our own personal life. The Holy Spirit is working in us in all areas of life. And it ends with self-control. Look at verse 23. Self-control. Self-control is so important when we think about how we live in the world. 98% of our country, during the time of the Founding Fathers, 1776, 98% of our country claimed to be Protestant Christians. 98%. That's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. Now, I, I think we can assume that not all of those that were claiming to be Christians were. 
But here's what John Adams said. John Adams is often quoted as one of the most secular of the founding fathers. But he observed that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern any other, to, to the government of any other. He wasn't the only founding father who said this. James Madison wrote that our Constitution requires sufficient virtue among men for self-government. Self-government. No, nothing less than the change of despotism can restrain them from destroying and devouring one another. Self-control. Self-control. What people early in our country understood is that those who have the Spirit of God, when you have a society that's largely Christians, they're able to control themselves. Their selves. Like, there's self-control there. So there doesn't have to be massive constraint, regulation, and red tape, and a thumb of oppression on top of them to control the masses because they have self-control. By the way, this is why uh, constitutional republics and democracy will not work in the Middle East. It will not work around the globe in the same way. It will not work unless you have a big pocket of Christian people because self-control is required for these types of governments to work. And what we see is in our land and in places in our, our life where self-control is lacking. And we see it everywhere. But what the Holy Spirit works inside of us is self-government, self-governance. We're not going to harm other people. We're going to do things the way God would have us. And with the fruit of the Spirit, ending with self-government, we're told that the law says nothing against these things. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have, or excuse me, verse 23, against such things there is no law. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit, there is no law against the fruit of the Spirit. We're, we're, not, we're not under the law in the same way anymore. There's no law against what the Spirit of God is working inside of us. This is what freedom looks like as a Christian. When we walk in step with the Spirit, we find no law that's, that condemns love. We find no law that condemns peace. We find no law that condemns patience. The fruit of the Spirit at work in us helps us to love God and to love people. So we need to find out how to do this. We need to find out how to walk in this. Let's talk about crucifying the flesh. Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, there's two ideas in Galatians about crucifying the flesh. The first is in chapter 2, verse 20, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. There are theological distinctions in these two ideas that I think is very important for us to understand. When Paul is talking about, in Galatians 2, being crucified with Christ, he's talk talking about the doctrine union with Christ. Okay? Union with Christ. We have been united with Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Here, Paul's talking about something different. Because he's talking about something Christians have done. These Galatian Christians have done. Like something they have done. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is past tense. They've done this. They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ clearly have done this. It's past tense. It's something that they have done. And I think we have to see that this is what repentance is. 
Now, God saves us. We love the grace of God here. We know this. God, salvation belongs to the Lord. God saves us from the beginning to the end. But when we are born, ag- born, born again, we are set free. We have that new heart. We can obey through the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. And we have commandments that we're called to obey. And that requires effort to obey. Obey the Lord requires as effort. It, it requires discipline. It's not about earning, but it's about responding in gratitude. And in verse 24, it says that this crucifying of the flesh is something that we have done. Every Christian in here, you've done this. You have crucified the flesh with its desires and passions. And when we became a Christian, we murdered the flesh. We took our flesh, we executed it. We took that old man, we nailed it to the cross. And whether we realized we did this or not, there was a line drawn in the sand and there was a declaration, no more, my old ways are my old ways. And my old man belongs there on the cross and I'm crucifying it, no more. That's not who I am anymore. I'm not walking in those ways anymore. I reject and repent of all of my sins. Practically, then, if that's something we all have done, what is this warfare we're talking about then? Because if this is something past tense we've already done, then why is there still a battle there? Why does Paul write what he writes in Romans 7? Why do we get this here in Galatians chapter 5? The flesh and the spirit. If this is, the flesh has already been crucified, why is it still there right in front of us? Because I think what we're, we're being told here is in light of Romans 7 and this passage, here's what often happens in the life of the believer. We often bend back the nails of the flesh that we crucified. Those sins that we said no to. The old man that we walked away from. And it's like we bend those nails and try to pull that crucified man back off that cross again. And it's like we act like that old crucified flesh is as powerful as the Holy Spirit. And instead, instead of that, we have to, as we once crucified the flesh, continue to crucify the flesh. We wake up with a hammer in our hand and a smile on our face, and instead of bending out those nails, we nail the flesh once again and crucify the flesh once again. We never let it back down off the cross. We have to mortify the flesh or crucify the flesh. We have to go to war with it. We have to fight it. We have to become like Mel Gibson in The Patriot. Remember that gruesome hatchet scene where he gets that hatchet after his son has been killed and he goes and there's like blood splattering all over his face and he just keeps taking that hatchet? You just keep going with the hatchet to the flesh and say, no! I'm not going to live a life of jealousy and pride and envy and sexual immorality. I'm not going to. I'm not taking it down off the cross. Jesus paid for these sins. I'm not going to take them back and play nice with them. I'm not. God, give me strength for the battle. I know you've won the war. I can do this with a smile on my face. I'm going to wake up tomorrow not in condemnation, not in fear of punishment. I'm going to wake up tomorrow knowing I belong to the Lord and I am not going to live that selfish way of living anymore. But we still need a how-to manual. We still need a how-to guide. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's as simple as this, okay? Then live by the Spirit. We're all like, yeah, but that's hard. How do I do that? 
I want to just be honest with you. Living by the Spirit, I think, or keeping in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Um, I think what we do is we read New Age mysticism into this. And to pull from another Mel Gibson movie, remember in Braveheart? If you haven't seen Braveheart, first off, it's, you, you need to see Braveheart, but... There's a couple scenes you need to fast forward through, but uh, there's that guy that's always talking to God, you know, yes, Father, you know, and he's, he's like a madman in the show. And in the movie, this, this madman, I, I think a lot of times we think walking in step with the Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit is only for a few group of really spiritual, really tuned into the Spirit people who can walk around and they sense the Holy Spirit every moment saying, go left or go right. And I think that for many believers, when we hear walk in step with the Spirit or live by the Spirit, we think that there's got to be this tuned-in antenna, Holy Spirit antenna radar here that's going around, and then we'll get these impulses that, that tell us, okay, do this and don't do this. And certainly, please hear me, the Holy Spirit does work in us and bring conviction or direction to us. But because... Of I think that over-spiritualized or hyper-spiritualized idea of, me, of, of what it means to walk in the Spirit, it feels like it's a category that's only for a select few group of people within the Christian faith. It's for the super-spiritual giants who know how to do that, but for everyday Christians, how in the world do I just keep in step with the Spirit? And if that's what we think of when we think about keeping in step with the Spirit, I think this is going to be a whole lot more confusing than it needs to be. Because I think what Paul's getting at here is very very plain and very clear. I want to thank JT, who's not here with me, but he was looking at this passage with me this week. It was very helpful. So I want to think about how do we walk in the Spirit today? Keep in step with the Spirit. And this is your hand guide. This is your manual for when you leave here, when you walk out of here. How do we keep in step with the Spirit? How do we live by the Spirit so we don't gratify the desires of the flesh? Okay. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. We just heard about it. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, or faithfulness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So when the Spirit is working, these things are coming out. And if that's the fruit of the Spirit, and if it encompasses love for God, love for others, and even self-government... The Holy Spirit is going to lead you into what He promises you to do. Promises to do for you. Excuse me. The Holy Spirit will lead you into what He promises to do for you. The Holy Spirit has promised to work the fruit of the Spirit in you. That's the fruit of the Spirit's work. So the Spirit is going to lead us into that work. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to lead you into. So keeping in step with the Spirit is not about becoming hyper-spiritual and everybody getting the Holy Spirit antenna at the door before you leave. The Spirit-filled life looks like the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life looks like the fruit of the Spirit. That's what keeping in step with the Spirit looks like. As you walk out of here, tomorrow there's going to be opportunities to love or to hate. The rest of this day, there's going to be opportunities to have fits of anger or to react in love. You're going to have opportunities today to be patient and have peace 
or to have turmoil and anxiety. I want to be in a hurry. Before you today, you had opportunities to be mean or kind, to be good or evil, to be faithful or unfaithful, to be gentle or harsh, to be self-controlled or to lack self-control. And now as you pray today, and you're praying, Holy Spirit, then lead me into, I want to lead the Spirit-filled life, so I want to be more of a loving man today. I want to be kind in the biblical definition of kind today. I want to have peace today. I want to have patience today. Help me in this. Help me grow in this. Holy Spirit, give me these opportunities and then help me walk in them because I want to tomorrow live and step with the Holy Spirit. And then tomorrow, when you have that opportunity to be angry or loving, and through the Holy Spirit's help, you love instead of hate, you're walking in step with the Spirit and you're not gratifying the desires of the flesh. When you go unwind the hose, Jared... Rather than yank the hose, you're walking in step with the Spirit. That's what walking in step with the Spirit practically looks like. Small steps of obedience, one after another. What does obedience to the Lord look like right now? What is the, what's going to bring peace in this moment? Not false peace, but real peace in this moment. And instead of bringing the discord, walk in peace. That's what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. It's what it looks like. Now, the Spirit's at work inside of you promising to do these things. So if we pursue these things intentionally, and we're told that this is what the fruit of the Spirit is, I think you'll see amazing, incredible breakthroughs where you recognize, my goodness, God, thank you that I'm I'm not acting like that anymore. And this is for each and every one of us. And I think if you look back in your life, you'll reflect in your life and you'll see, actually, that's what the Holy Spirit's been doing inside of me already. I'm a different man than I used to be. I'm a different woman than I used to be. You ask your husband or your wife, hey, have you seen the fruit of the Spirit in me? And they're like, what day? But they'll be able to recognize, yes, I do see growth in you. I do see the Holy Spirit doing this in you. And so as you pursue the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we have promises that this is actually what the Holy Spirit's doing inside of us. And so tomorrow, don't worry about the antenna. The Holy Spirit will lead you and and guide you in that way. But tomorrow, here's what you know you need to grow in, the fruit of the Spirit. And as you pursue that, the Holy Spirit works that in you. And then there is this uh, temptation that can come. When you're following and walking in the fruit of the Spirit, there's temptations that can come. They're always there. Look at verse 26. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. As we walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, there's temptations to spiritual pride. When Christians take living and walking in the Spirit seriously, there's always a temptation for spiritual pride. I'm not going to vocalize it, but I'm the most Christian Christian I know. We take it seriously. They don't, but we do. We're we're serious about our faith, and they're not. There's temptations that come with walking in the Spirit. When you recognize yourself, God God doing this, boy, I'm, I'm just the most loving man I know. I wish everybody was as loving as me. I just really know how to love now. God, thank you for making me such a loving person. 
temptations to sin are there even when we walk in the Spirit. There's temptations for spiritual pride. Why aren't others doing what I'm doing? The smallest way it, it turns itself out, like, uh, like honestly, if as I'm driving and you have bad, everybody's a bad driver but yourself, right? If everybody drove my, like me, the world would be a better place. In your mind, you're thinking, as you're, you got the TV on, or people saying just incredibly crazy things on the internet. Like, they're nuts. If the world was more like me, the world would be a better place. The temptations to sin are sure to be there. After, after being told this, let us live with the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, but let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Why does he end with that? Why does he end this little section before we get into chapter 6 with more warnings? And here's the reason I think it's there. Okay, It doesn't say this is the reason it's there. So take this with a grain of salt. Even as we walk in step with the Spirit, we have to know, we have to know that our hope is in Jesus and not in our ability to walk in step with the Spirit. Because as we walk in step with the Spirit, we're not doing that so we can walk away from Jesus. We're not doing that so we can be reminded of our lack of need of Him. Look, I'm more loving now, therefore I need Jesus less today. No. Even as you keep in step with the Spirit... There are temptations right around the corner of spiritual pride, of envy. There are temptations there of provoking one another. Even as you're walking in step with the Spirit, there's never going to be a day, as you're on your deathbed, and let's just say you've lived the most Christian, Spirit-filled life that you've ever lived, that anybody has ever lived, and on your deathbed, if you, if you have lived the most Spirit-filled life, you'll know on your deathbed, my only hope is Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is my hope in life and death. My hope in life and death is not because I've kept in step with the Spirit. My hope in my life and in this moment is Jesus Christ, His blood and His righteousness crucified for me. As much as you crucify your flesh, that is not the crucifixion that will ultimately save you. It's only the death of Christ that saves sinners. His life, death, and resurrection. So don't become conceited. Don't provoke one another. Look to Jesus and look to Jesus the rest of your days. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we look to Christ and we walk in step with the Spirit. We pursue the fruit of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will help you crucify your flesh. Don't embrace a lie that you're going to walk out of here and your life's just going to be no different. And that the power of sin isn't broken. That's what the devil wants you to think. Is that the power of sin isn't broken in your life. So don't buy the lies of the enemy. Believe that the Holy Spirit will help you crucify your flesh and its evil desires. And then today, if you don't know Jesus, hear me say this, you have no hope of crucifying your flesh. Uh, you need to know the one who was crucified for you. And you need to come to him and repent of your sins and follow Jesus. And I, I was talking about those walking in sexual immorality earlier. It doesn't matter what sin you're walking in. There's hope in Jesus. Nobody's too far. Nobody is too far. And you think, well, Jared, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. 
I know you've sinned against a holy God and you deserve hell because of those sins. And I know that anybody who will come to Jesus will be saved. He will not turn you away. And if you'll repent of your sins and you'll trust in Jesus, you will be saved and you'll receive eternal life. And then you can join the club denying yourself and walking in step with the Spirit all the days of your life. 